Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. We're live on 89.3 FM, WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Now, all right, look, you want your voice heard on the radio, right? 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? we got a lot on the show tonight. Call us live on air, 847 847- 866-9687. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. All right, tonight we look back at the career of Russian baritone Dmitry Vorostovsky, who died last week at the age of 55. And we take a closer look at the vocal technique of phrasing for which Dima was so famous. But first, Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback and reviews the production of Bizet's The Pearl Fishers at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And later, it's the two-minute drill when you get all your opera headlines from the past week and our head takes on them. That's at 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill. Got a lot on the show tonight. Welcome back, Oliver Camacho. Hello, everybody. And I have to just say... Whenever I'm not on the show, I'm very nervous about what you guys are going to say and what type of fake news is going to be uh, put out there into the world. But I have to say last week's Thanksgiving Spectacular was great. Uh, and I'm very happy there was so much Shirley Verrett. There was like two whole clips of Shirley Verrett. It was like almost like a tribute to Shirley Verrett. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a true reach of Shirley <laughs> no, that's, that's all I have to say about there that. There isn't. Yeah, that was no thanks to me, certainly. That yeah. was all Cummings. You're too. like Gibbard and Sullivan, and I hate Mozart. I forget what you were like. <laughs> I was Jerry Springer the opera. Oh, girl. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, was great. Hey, how was your Thanksgiving, Oliver? Um, Next year is going to be great. Yeah, that's that's what I'll say there's, about there's that. There's a positive note. For yeah, there's always next year. Yeah, next year I'm going to be married or at least engaged to be married. I think. What happened? Didn't your gravy turn out right? Or what's wrong? I couldn't cook this year. I don't have a kitchen this year. I'm homeless. Remember? I thought that was over. Nope. Not Jeez, yet, dude. Yep. So I cooked no gravy, and like gravy is very important to me. I actually once wrote the gravy Messiah. Like I re- changed all like the proper nouns to gravy, and it's very singable. Yeah. Somehow so. that does not surprise me yeah. even a little and bit. And the Oliver. gravy, the gravy of the Lord, and the gravy, the gravy. <laughs> For example, you know. Yeah. Just Matt- <laughs> a little, a little smattering. Matt, yes. Matt, Matt Cummings, how was your Thanksgiving? Mine was really nice. We went up to my grandmother's house, and lots of family coming in and out, and ate way too much butter, but. If there mm. is such a thing, but yeah, and there's a butter shortage in France. So there's a what? There's a butter happen? shortage in France. Yeah, 
Send send us your butter. What else do they eat? That's gonna be our Christmas uh, drive. Like our uh, like we'll we'll send butter to France. At least we know what's really important out there. Everybody, give us your butter. Yeah, the people in Puerto yeah. Rico, they don't need our help, right? <laughs> they don't want butter's going to melt. Not, not yeah. when there are French people without butter, George. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, Thanksgiving, it was great. Uh, what's awful is the Bears. The Bears got totally dominated yesterday. Sure. And uh, we uh, Here in Chicago, if you're not in Chicago right now and you are into sports, we've, we've moved on past the Bears. Everybody's But Northwestern's doing them. very well. Northwestern's doing very well. Yeah, go Cats. Um, go Cats, go Hawks. Uh, the Bulls suck, but okay. we've, we've... You're talking we've, about the Black Hawks, correct? <laughs> yeah, the Hawks. Okay, just making sure. Because there's not another team that, like, uh, some other sport where we have a team not called the Hawks. Not in Chicago. You okay. do realize that hockey is my all-time favorite sport. Really? More than football. Well, oh you're white, God. so I should have guessed. So. That's you're true. You're so white. And it's true. <laughs> from Michigan. Yeah, but it's like, it's not Space like I like Canada. lacrosse or something like that. I mean, I'm white, but I'm not or that like white. Or like rape. You know? No, no. Definitely. Definitely <laughs> not into that. Christ. All right, let's, let's talk some opera. Pass or fail? Here's Monday evening quarterback. Ah, yes. Monday evening quarterback Oliver Camacho is going to get this one going on for us. You saw the Pearl Fishers. You know what? I'm, I'm thinking right now the lyric is, you know, they're fully into their season. I think they're now on their, their third show. Right. Um, I forgot what the season opener was. Do you remember what it was, Matt? They did Valkyrie. No, no. they had did the one before that. It was Orfeo. Oh, okay. oh, it was Orfeo. Right. So Valkyrie... Um, was amazing, and now we have Pearl Fishers, which can be done basically during the intermissions of uh, Valkyrie. It's it's a pretty short <laughs> opera. It's a little. It's a pretty lightweight. Piece. Yeah, and you can like cut out some of the dances and cut out like the overture or whatever. And it really is. Yeah. It's basically a duet for the tenor and the baritone, an amazing tenor aria, uh, a coloratura prayer for the soprano. Uh, an aria for the soprano, an aria for the baritone, and then a duet for the baritone and the soprano. And then there's a somewhat of a melod- melod- melody-less duet between the tenor and the soprano. It's a terrible duet. But most of those pieces that I named are actually very good pieces of music, yeah. stitched together with some very subpar choral writing and a very bad like oriental libretto uh, like this, like brings out the worst in you know racism and you know stereotypes of yeah. It's not exactly right. the South. most insightful <laughs> yes, piece. Yes, exactly. Um, so, how did lyric opera do? Well, they. Let me ask first. Yes. So, so having said all that, yeah. Why should we do this show, which predates Carmen by twelve years? Mm. Why should we do this show, and why should we see this show? Because the the pieces of music that work, namely the duet. The tenor aria, and I would also say the bass aria, the baritone aria, are beautiful pieces of music. And right now, we we are lucky to have at least two singers in this cast who are known for these roles and do them very well. They're maybe the best exponents of these roles today. And these two singers were the same singers when Oliver and I went yeah, on our hot date yeah. to go see the Met HD. It's, popcorn. The, it's yeah. the same two. It's Marius Kvitschen uh, in the role of Zurga. And uh, Matthew Polanzani in the role of Nadir. And let's just hear a little bit of Matthew Polanzani. We might have actually played this exact same clip like two years ago. Nothing wrong with that. But it's here incredible. is uh, Matthew Polanzani in the kind of exposition of uh, Je crois entendre. Je crois entendre. 
Okay, so I think that uh, is either from the HD broadcast or from the dress rehearsal from uh, the Met from 2015. Mm-hmm. I have to say it was even better in person. Uh, Matthew Polanzani has an uncanny control of his upper register and is able to go from a full like chest tone uh, to what we call the voix mixte. Voix mixte. Mixed? Mixed. Um, I forget what, what consonant is in there. Do you know what consonant is in that? I think it's that? mixed. With Mi- an X. Mixed. Yeah. Um, and he does it so seamlessly that uh, it, it's like a magic trick. Mm. And he continues to spin the line. The vibrato speed does not change. So it sounds like it's all part of one register when it's clearly a combination of two registers. And it's a very tricky thing. And in this clip, you actually, there was a little bit of a click where the voice broke and then it slipped, flipped over into the mixed registration the mixed registration but it uh at the theater on saturday when i saw pearl fishers it was perfection mm. and it was enough reason just to hear him sing for five minutes at this technically proficient and beautifully phrased uh was enough reason to go see the show so i would recommend if you're a matthew polanzani fan and you want to hear this aria sung live it will probably be the best you'll ever hear it in your life there's a show on wednesday closes december yes. 10 let but, me just say here Super quick. Yeah. This cast is one of the sexiest casts oh. I think I've ever seen out there. I mean, let me, let me just say, Matthew Polanzani, in this headshot, it, oh, it's God. on the, the lyricopera.org yeah. website, he's like a model he's for like, Brooks Brothers. He's here. like smoldering dad. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Apparently, like, when you get to be as famous as him, you don't have yeah. to have light on your entire face yeah. in your headshot, like, because you can only see two-thirds well, of him. Well, especially not when you're a brooding baritone. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's definitely he's definitely doing the brood here. But they had their, their uh, makeup and hair to look like they were brothers. It was kind of creepy. So what, especially when they were singing Au fond du temple song, it was a little bit like incest duet, you know? Yeah, that, that's always a danger with that. Yeah. Thank They're just for... keeping in the theme of the other parts. Fair of the enough. Yes. And uh, Marina Rebecca, who I, I don't know is a singer. Whoa. Okay. What a so here's here. Okay. First of all, I'm going to say really quickly, because we, 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 <laughs> we need to wrap this up. Keep it in your pants. Uh, that the production was awful. Uh, this is from San Diego. It looked like a, a really bad college production. The colors were blinding, and the choreography was embarrassing. Well, I I'm noticed so sorry that they've on the website they've taken a production still and they've mm. changed it with a bit like a close up of a woman's face. Yeah, likely because the design, which is by Xandra Rhodes, uh, she looks totally nutty in her headshot. Yeah. By the way, which I kind of love. I think the design was dreadful. Yeah, but as you said, it was embarrassing. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. it really. I was embarrassed for everybody on I that stage, know. but. Um, the um, Marina Beck Rebecca is sort of the controversial figure in this cast. How so? Because she is she is this you know very steely lyric coloratura soprano who has mm-hmm. now started to incorporate some um, dramatic coloratura roles into her repertoire. I first heard okay. her singing Donna Anna, I don't know, like maybe seven years ago, and I was really impressed with just like the edge that's in her voice and the accuracy of pitch and the coloratura technique. Then she came to the Lyric Opera. I think her debut was as Violetta, which I was I felt was cold because she's so technically proficient that you don't really hear any risk in the way she sings. And she doesn't have like color yet in her voice. Her voice is perfect, but it doesn't have a lot of like grit to it, you know? And so this role, Layla, I assume always was should be taken by a lyric soprano who has a color to her extension, but not necessarily a color to a lyric soprano. Mm-hmm. Or lyric culture soprano because it is bizet. It's like romantic French, and you want a little bit more heft in the middle voice and color. 
And Marina Becca has that sort of like, uh, you know, Eastern European slash almost Scandinavian, like just bright, edgy, you know, steely sound. And she can do anything with her voice. Like it's really impressive how much control she has. And like I said, the color to her technique is flawless and the high notes are flawless. But I just didn't feel anything when she sang it. And she did crazy stuff like rolling around on the floor on the stage. Good and like, for her. Yeah, she can do it all. But uh, I just was not convinced by her singing. I wasn't moved by her singing. Just on so. opera bass, it looks like her lyric debut was uh, 2013 Traviata. Yeah, that's when it was. And then yeah. she did Donna either a year or two later, which I saw and remember really liking. Yeah, I think for Mozart, it's great. I'm just really curious as to how they think that she could sing Norma and Layla, which are like, I feel like are opposite ends of the spectrum. But then somebody pointed out to me on Facebook that the original Layla also sang Norma. So shows who, who knows more. So not me. <laughs> There's always somebody who knows more out there. Uh, Cummings, <laughs> are you going to so. check this show out or are you going to take a pass? I will if I can get to see it, like Oliver said, just to see Matthew Polanzani. Uh, because I will always listen to him sing. And that aria is one of the hardest pieces of music I have ever coached in my entire life. And he makes it sound like it's just a walk in the park. Yeah. So you know, you know just how difficult. Oh my gosh, it's that so is. high and yeah. never comes down onto yeah. the staff. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> we uh, we should step aside. We got mm-hmm. a big second segment coming up tonight after the break. It's chalk talk. We remember the great Russian baritone Dmitry Vorostovsky. It's opera box score on WNUR, and that's eighty nine point three FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. It's Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and oh yeah, Matt Cummings. Youngs are gonna enjoy this.
It's Opera Box Score in WNUR 89.3 FM. <sighs> that was a fateful night in June of 1989, uh, the finals of the Cardiff Singer of the World competition, uh, which Dmitry Vorosovsky won, uh, competing against Monica Group, uh, Halevi Martin Pelto, uh, Helen Adams, and uh, another baritone named Bryn Turville. <laughs> oh, who's that? I've never heard yeah. of him. Who, of course, was yeah. a local kid, right? It's in Cardiff. Yeah, it's Wales. So. He's expected to win, and yeah. yet, like and all good sports stories. Yeah. He did win the song prize, but the top honors went to this mysterious, fresh-faced Russian from uh, Siberia. Who already has like little tiny streaks of gray coming through his really thick, dark, almost like charcoal-colored hair. Uh, so handsome. Yeah. Uh, and here's this guy who's, I mean, I wasn't paying attention to opera when I was in 1989. I, you know, was listening to it, but I was not yet like the full on queen that I became just right. a couple years later. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but to think that, you know, he was, how, how long ago was that? That was 17 plus years. 11, 20 yeah. years ago. So he was 28 minus 55, whatever that number is. 27. Yeah, he was in his 20s and he was singing like that. And, you know, besides having just a beautiful, charismatic, and handsome stage presence, he also had this gorgeous tone. But the thing that he will be remembered for is his phrasing, which has to do with his ridiculous breath control, but not just breath control, like his understanding of the phrase. And we just heard one of the aries he competed with, which is, oh, I'm going to mess this up, it's from The Queen of Spades by Tchaikovsky, Ya Vas Lyubu. Is that how you say that? Some, Matt? Close, close, something yeah. like that. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. That was a B yeah. plus. Yes, it's yeah. true. Dmitry Vorostovsky, he died last Wednesday at the age of 55. He'd been battling brain cancer since 2015. He was very, very open about that challenge and about that disease. And uh, I believe he was buried today in the famous Novodevichy Cemetery in Moscow. We are, we're going to honor him today on the show. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to play some recordings, but we're also going to do something a little different and try and separate ourselves from the pack and, and make a larger point here and talk about phrasing, which, as Oliver said, was really kind of one of his hallmarks, in addition to that silver fox oh, yeah. hair. There are not he, many like appearances in opera that are that iconic, but I would say his is definitely up there. Yeah. You just... If you got one glimpse of that silvery mane, you knew exactly who you were listening. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I saw him do uh, the title role in Onegin at Lyric yeah. in 2006, oh, yes, I was... think, the Robert Carson production, yeah. which was just here last year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like, there he is. It was kind of shocking yeah. in a way. You know? What, what, have, just first, what have we lost with Dmitry Vorostovsky passing away? Have we lost something that we're probably never going to get again in our lifetime in opera? Or is that an overstatement? 
Well, I'll I'll let Matt answer that too, but I'll just say that we don't have a lot of Verdi baritones around right now. And some might argue that Vorostovsky kind of forced himself into the Verdi baritone kind of model. He always had like um, like a, an understanding of phrasing that would make him fit into Verdi singing, but his voice wasn't huge like you need to to really be like Amanazro in Aida mm. or... Um, what is this role in, in La Forza does scene? Like, where you expect oh, just like a Leonard Warren or like a Robert Merrill type of like huge voice? But it's so dark and rich, and he has yeah. such a co- such solid command over his tone that he kind of convinces you that he is. Yeah, I would say absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, just but if you put him next to like the great like Italian whatever Verdi baritones, like he would sound like he has a small voice. But yeah, the color mm. definitely fits, and on recording, it's amazing. But I also think feel like what we miss is something that maybe Matt might not. Uh, feel the same way because I'm a generation older than him. But Dmitry Vorosovsky was at the height of like recordings, and you know he had this contract with Philips, and uh, he recorded everything that he sang. And we have great like evidence of his career, of uh, especially you know Russian art song and Russian folk mm-hmm. song, and his roles in Russian. Uh, and, you know, if you are a fan of recordings, you probably have a lot of Dmitry Vorosovsky in your library. You he know? was not one of the first internationally famous Russian singers, though. No, right? no, there there are plenty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But just like in the high, like in the golden age of recording, like which is like the 80s and it's the 90s. Like, you it's, know, a really, right? it's a really good point. When you read his obituary, you know, in the Washington Post or the New York Times, something that cop, crops up a lot is this sort of the sex appeal that he had. Absolutely. Uh, he was talked about as the Elvis of opera, I think, in Vogue magazine and Glamour. And it's apparently, it's a soubriquet, if I may, uh, a title that he really kind of didn't like. I feel like it what, cheapens what he did. You know? I, and I understand that. You don't want to be reduced to something like that, especially when you have such a phenomenal talent. But what I will say about the, you know, the other side of the coin there is that he is definitely, he was an accessible figure. To people who are coming to opera for the first time, I know a lot of singers who are my age and a little bit younger who maybe weren't so keen to dive into listening to recordings and really going in headfirst on the that side of it, who really, he was their starting point. He was their entry in entryway because, you know, he was so glamorous, but also kind of rough around the edges. And his persona was able to magnify the art that he created and made it... Uh, made it a little bit more relatable to people who didn't necessarily have the same sort of familiarity with the art form as I definitely as I, as we do today. I mean, I feel like him and Anna Netrebko are sort of like peas in a pod. Like yeah. they both have like this really outgoing personality and like, you know, self-deprecating, you know, they're, they're able to, they understand what they are, you know, and they sort of like enjoy being kind of outrageous and, just being charismatic, you know. Yeah, but and, I yeah, I think there's there's an element of truth though in Vorostovsky and the way he presented himself and the way he dealt with his illness that seemed very honest and real to me in a way that I just think Natre- that uh, Atrebs is a faker. I don't know about I just, that. I thought that's kind of harsh on her. I mean, yeah. she the, all all that stuff that's going like she is so open with her child and all the stuff that's going on with her family life. Like I don't want to make this a segment about Anna Netrebko either. But <laughs> how typical <laughs> that she would monopolize Borisovsky's yes. airtime. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I I just think that he was, you know, matinee idol good looks never hurt. They didn't hurt Corelli, and yeah. and they didn't hurt any of the other 
people, but when you, there's no, they don't make up for a lack of talent. And he yep. definitely, he had no lack of talent. If that is a not confusing way of saying that, like, I don't think that he necessarily would have gotten as far as he did. There have been plenty of singers who are just good looking and were good enough to get people's attention. Yeah. But to have, to be the most sought after baritone for an entire generation of singers, you know, he, it was the voice. And, and to sell out a house, it. you know, like, yeah. I mean, he didn't do that many recitals in Chicago, but I remember I probably told the story before where he sang a recital at Orchestra Hall and that place was packed with furs and leather. And he gets to his like last set, set where he sings like Russian folk songs and the whole audience <laughs> sings along with him. Like it's a thing he can do. Like he really has that type of charisma and that type of fan following. And the know, Russian so. community will come out of the woodwork to support him. Yeah. Yes. The man was from Siberia, from a Siberian yeah. factory town. Yeah. No, it's like, amazing. He had a rough, if you read the post, he had a rough, rough childhood. Hmm. A lot of alcoholism. I mean, it's Russia. Like, yeah. people are depressed and they drink a lot. But So let's get to the meat of this. Go like, for it. Um, I asked Matt to maybe say a couple words because I think Matt's becoming like our resident, like, I don't know, smart guy on the show. <laughs> Articulate yeah, who doesn't to stumble me, his words. Tobias Wright, it's yeah. not hard. Um, so I just want to say that Phrasing is one of those things that we talk about a lot, especially if you're a young singer, you hear coaches or you go to master classes, you watch, you know, master classes online. It's a word that gets bandied about a lot, but I think very few people actually take the time to explain what phrasing means. And it's actually hard to put it into words, but in so many ways, I'll let Matt give like a better definition, but for me, it's how a musician, uh, you know, interprets a line of music as if it were like a, uh, a sentence like okay let's say like your page of music is like a paragraph of words like you have to find the sentences within the paragraph and you emphasize certain words uh through adding you know more intensity of tone or even increasing the volume of the tone maybe rushing past some non-important words in your sentence to make the more important words stick out uh it's where you take rhetorical breaths Sometimes you take a breath because you have no choice. You must take a breath because you ran out of air. But sometimes you add a little bit of space between words just to demarcate what clause of your sentence is important. Uh, so I like to think of music like language, you know. And thank goodness, as singers, we actually have words to go along with, along with it. And some people make musical phrases, and some people make linguistic phrases. And sometimes people make a choice. And it's really interesting to hear two interpretations of the same piece, one based on a more, you know, language rhetoric, and one based on more of a musical rhetoric. It's Opera Box Score, WNUR, 89.3 FM, talking about Dmitry Vorostovsky, who died last week. If you got an opinion on him and you remember him, let us know what you're thinking. 847-866-WNUR. But let's hear Matt explain what phrasing actually is. <laughs> so part of the hard part that I was coming that I was coming across when I was working on this definition of phrasing is that it's related to so many other things. Like you said, it's related to your breath. It's related to your tone. It's related to dynamics. It's related to articulation. It's related to uh, it, uh, rubato and tempo. And it's kind of all of those things. And yet it's its own thing at the same time. And it is the way that you take a, what, what I really listen for when I'm listening for phrasing is when you see a bunch of notes on the page or that are all the same length. And there is not necessarily any sort of nuance implied there. Because if you're going to 
when you just have 18 quarter notes in a row, those look like they're all going to be the same length. And phrasing is how you make them different. Phrasing is how you make them language. Phrasing is how you make them make sense in terms of melody, in terms of character. And uh, what is so excited about it, what's so exciting about it, it's so individual. And a lot of times when we talk, we talk about singers being graceful, or we talk about singers being stylists, or we talk about singers being artful. And I feel like most of the time what we're talking about there is phrasing and what they do what they do with their voices in order to add nuance to the music in order to uh give it a sort in order to make the music express the subtext the subtext of what they're actually saying and i think that you can kind of divide that up into a few different categories and they overlap uh one of them is is in terms of the mechanics of singing how do you what kind of color are you using your tone? What's your vibrato speed like? What is your dynamic like? What articulations, you know, are the notes separated from each other or are they more legato and linked together? Uh, how are you lingering on some pitches or and, and alt, uh, altering the tempo in that way is number one. The next thing is how are you using your phrasing in order to draw attention to the text? And that can be through breathing. It can be through uh, adding stress to syllables and really letting the the different stresses of the words alter uh, notes that are written to be the same length but wouldn't really be sung the same length because then it sounds like a robot is singing. Uh, and how do you you know juggle both of those back and forth in terms of where where do you breathe and where do you where do you not breathe and where where do, is evenness more important than idiosyncrasy? Uh, and the final one is in terms of, I, I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of this, but I found uh, and like a really old book from about 100 years ago where all of the examples were translated into English, like from Duchenne and Millerin. They, they were written with the English words and the German words weren't even there. Strange. Uh, so maybe this is an outdated way of talking about singing, but I thought it was really interesting. And it was talking about uh, your your power and your pacing throughout it in terms of, you know, how much are you putting your foot on the gas? How much are you gunning for the climax of the phrase? And where are you in terms of how much voice you're giving and what sort of, what sort of sound you're making? Uh, And again, all of those are really interwoven because otherwise it wouldn't be music and you can never, it's impossible to draw really clear lines, but that spider web of, different uh music theory buzzwords <laughs> to me is kind of what makes phrasing interesting and the fact that you can go at it from so many different angles is what makes it worth talking about and that's why there are so many interpretations of like the great operas because besides wanting to hear somebody's actual tone quality in a certain piece of music there are the decisions that the artist makes and the best ones have it all they have a beautiful voice, but they also have intelligent phrasing and, you know, a killer technique, for example. Got it. Let's actually, I think we have time to hear a couple of examples of non Dmitry Vorosovsky just to illustrate some of these points. Maybe we'll hear the first two. Uh, do you want to run them back to back or do you want to pause between, Matt? Let's, let's run them back to back. Okay. And, and tell us who we're listening to here. So the first one that I sent you, I believe, is Maria Callas. Uh, and the second one is... Sandra Radvanovsky, and right. the third is Aprile Milo. These are three singers who are all noted uh, Verdi interpreters, and they're singing the big climactic phrase from the Act Two aria of Un Ballo in Mascara. Uh, and let's go for it. 
So yeah, Cummings, tell us what what are you hearing there? So that that is a phrase that goes like from zero to sixty, and then all the way back down to zero. And you have to be able to do it without losing your momentum. And uh, what I love about Sandra Radvanovsky singing, for instance, is the fact that she is able to link like three and a half phrases together without ever taking a breath, and go from soft to loud, and all the way back to soft again. Uh, what you give up a little bit, though, is sometimes the beauty of her tone quality gets a little bit sacrificed in order for that control. And definitely the text gets sacrificed in order for that vocal control, uh, which is not which is a little bit different in the Aprile Milo clip where she is singing, I would say, more beautifully throughout. But the phrases are choppier. She has to take more breaths. Uh, she she links together in a, in a different way. She uses a lot of portamento where she slides from one note to the other instead of just letting the, and having the, the voice carry from note to note instead of the breath, for instance. Uh, and the, the, I put a little bit of Maria Callas singing in there as well because her phrasing, I felt, was, is always driven much more by the language than by the, by the voice. Definitely. And the, just the way that she'll stretch a syllable here or there and but it always feels natural. It always feels called for. And she was so meticulous about following the composer's instructions. Uh, just uh, points out that there are more than, there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat here. And I liked all three of those clips, but 
Oliver, do you have anything to add? Well, in I'll just there? say that like when we talk about phrasing, especially at this level where the technical demands are very high, where I mean, you can phrase like a Schubert song, you can phrase all sorts of things, you know, intelligently. But when you have something like this with Verdi, where it's so difficult for some people, they don't have a choice. Yeah. And I feel like almost the point that you're making with the Aprilia Milo clip is that she is giving tone all the time. And she, like you said, she wants the tone to be beautiful, but she is sacrificing, you know, more decisive phrasing, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're going to lead up to another clip. This is uh, uh, a clip, a very famous clip of Dmitry Borisovsky, uh from the Cardiff competition uh, from the uh, second half of the double aria for Rodrigo. Rodrigo dies in this opera, and it takes him like 12 minutes or something like that. Uh, but it this is be an operatic. Yeah, this is o, o Carlo Ascolta. But we're going to hear another baritone sing the same phrase before we hear Vorosovsky. So let's just say that this baritone that we're going to hear is a great baritone, same generation, uh, Scandinavian. Uh, I don't, we don't have to say who he is because it's not a bad performance, but like we're not, I'm not trying to throw shade, you know. But this is like a baritone who's singing right now and who gets a lot of this work. Uh, and just to hear the difference between, you know, a great, a good baritone and like a phenomenal baritone singing this, this phrase. Ah, this is it. Okay. We heard two baritones, <clears throat> one uh, same generation as Dmitry Vorostovsky, uh, still singing today, uh, who's s- singing this famous scene from Don Carlo, a very long scene, and it's grueling, uh, and it's the last thing he gets to sing, so he can really give it everything. But the first baritone, in my opinion, uh, w- let the aria control him. Like, he was barely getting to the end of the phrase. He was holding back the tone because he wanted to save it to have enough to get to the end of the phrase. <laughs> and as a result, there wasn't much of a musical, ch- musical choice being made. Uh, it was fine. And like if you probably got that in the theater, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that was pretty good, you know? But then we have the whatever 25-year-old or 27-year-old Dmitry Vorosovsky uh, at the Cardiff competition singing the exact same thing. And even as a young man, he had a clear idea of how he wanted to do that. And you got tone right away. But you also had climax in the phrase, you know, and dramatic choices being made. And even the breath, you knew that he was at the end of his rope and you could hear 
the way he took the breath in it was like he needed that air but he gave you everything and it was so exciting and some he used that breath a lot like later in his career it kind of became one of his mannerisms but i loved it you know to hear like you get to see a little bit of like the gear changing you know like hmm. you know you don't always want a smooth but you want to know that there's that there's something technical happening you know you want to feel the edge yeah like, that exactly something could go wrong or, yeah. or it, otherwise it's a robot. Yes. And I, I would recommend listening to that whole scene because what's interesting is that theme comes in a couple times and he doesn't do it the same way every time, which is another thing that you can do with phrasing is add, you know, add difference, add nuance, add, add changes within one piece. Yeah. Uh, you can add in breath. He, he, and I've heard, I listened to other versions where he took breaths in between in the, uh, in the later iterations of that phrase in order to make it make it apparent that the death is coming yeah that that kind of dramatic use of phrasing well that was in so many ways our tribute to dmitry vorosovsky um i recommend that i mean if you like both of these pieces the prince Yeletsky aria or the rodrigo scene there are so many versions of on youtube of him doing this and it's just amazing to hear you know that he always did something special with these two arias particularly I'm going to give you my final thought, not in my words, but in the words of Rolando Villazon, the, the tenor who's also a director now. He says, quote, we will always remember his shiny white hair, his conquering smile, his handsome devilish eyes, his Herculean presence, his wonderful, unique singing, powerful and delicate at the same time. Dima, the great singer, the great colleague has left us, but his legacy remains. After the break, it's the two-minute drill. All your headlines from the past week in Opera Land. Stick around for those and our hot takes. Opera Box Score, WNUR. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news, everything you need to know from the past week. International soprano Carol Nablet died on Thanksgiving Day at 71 after her New York City opera debut at 23 as Musetta in Puccini's La Boheme. She was a company stalwart for 10 years, and she went on to sing in all major houses, forming a notable partnership on stage and on record with Placido Domingo. The tale of the... Oregon Bach Festival artist liaison Linda Ackerman's firing, which uh, was pushed through that summer by the OBF executive director Janelle McCoy, may shed light on the still unexplained firing this past summer of the artistic director Matthew Halls, a case which has drawn international news coverage and nearly unrelenting criticism of the 47-year-old festival and the University of Oregon, which operates it. German 
Supertitles for opera sung in other languages have been provided at Oper Frankfurt since 1990 and later on could also be seen for operas performed in German. Now the house has introduced English supertitles, which will appear above the stage alongside the German ones for all performances in the main house. And on this day, the deaths of playwright Eugene O'Neill in 1953 and the singer Lotta Lenya in 1981. That's the two-minute drill. Welcome back to Opera Box Score with George, Oliver, and Matt. That's right. Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR. On Twitter, at Opera Box Score. Let us know what you thought of Dmitry Vorostovsky. He's the focus of tonight's show, having passed away last week from brain cancer at the age of 55. Kind of a shorter two-minute drill this week. God, the Oregon Bach Festival, that plot just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. Yeah, Mm. and it does not seem like there's any way out soon. There's still a lot of, if you read this article, they're still stirring up drama. It's complex. That article is very complex. Yeah. It'll be on our website, operaboxscore.com. Yeah, so now we know that maybe it wasn't just this whole, you know, racial joking thing from Matthew Halls. There's maybe something much more nefarious happening there at Oregon Bach Festival. But they are um, oversought by like a school, right? There's like some university for U- that. University a, of Oregon. So they can kind of absorb, I guess, like their losses because yeah. they are like a institution probably with like money to burn through for something like that. But who knows if it's sustainable on its own anymore, you know? I did not know a lot about Carol Nablet, but boy, she made for interesting reading. She was taking her clothes off all over the place. Yeah, in I re- this production of like Massenet's uh, Thais. Thais. Thais, which is about a courtesan, to be fair. Yes, but I I read in one of the articles I read about her that they're saying that that is most likely the first uh, full frontal nudity in a staged opera in that what? production of Thais in the seventies. How about that? I mean, you do look at some of the archival photos of her, and you're like. Her hairstyle is a bit like a 70s porn yeah, star. Like yeah, like Barbarella. I'm not yeah. saying that she was. I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. She's a victim of the times. Yeah. Well, let's but. hear a little bit more about, did you have a chance to look her up, uh, Matt? Yeah, she was born in Cal- California and made her de- professional debut at age 18 and really worked consistently from then until the early 2000s. Uh, she was known for her... Her, her glamour and boldness on stage, as well as her daring repertoire choices. She w- had a beautiful lyric soprano voice that I hope we get a chance to hear a little bit of on I'm, the show tonight. I'm ready. Let's go for it. Thank you. 
Got some big lungs, a little, uh, little wavery on the pitch there. But definitely someone who's exciting to watch on stage and someone who absolutely went for it, which is something that always excites me. And for the last 12 years, she was a teacher in Southern California at Chapman University, and she had a private studio. So she was able to pass on her wisdom to quite a few singers probably in that time. Died on Thursday at the age of 71. Slip Disc made a big deal about English language supertitles being projected for all of the operas at Oprah Frankfurt. I don't see why that's a big deal. That, that seems to be a smart move. Especially because in a lot of those European houses, they rely, there's a big culture of going to the opera, but it is a huge tourism attraction too. And it just seems realistic to do that. And I've never really understood, maybe it's because I'm a child of the 90s, I've never really understood the controversy over super titles in the opera because it seems like a win-win if you want them you can look at them and if you don't want them you cannot look at them. Furthermore, the Oprah Frankfurt intendant Bernd Loeber literally has in my book, never put a foot in the wrong place. So I don't know why I would question this decision by him now. He says, quote, We see the provision of English surtitles as an attractive offer for our increasingly international audiences, which will hopefully make a visit to the opera all the more enjoyable, end quote. I mean, he, he just said what you said, Cummings. Anything I, that makes it more accessible is a good thing in my yeah, book. Yeah, I don't. But also, we're not supposed to be reading slip discs now, are we? Well, uh, you you don't. I do. Uh, it's you, good to know what he's saying, even if I don't say I don't agree, agree with it. I just yeah. I just say I'd say I read it mostly because it's great cannon fodder, <laughs> and it, it always makes for a good argument. I, I, it's like the fake news of opera, dude. So. It's not some. It's not fake. <laughs> a lot it's of it's fake. fake. It's, it's it's one man's opinion. I we, we should do a whole nother show just on that. <laughs> good call, bad call on opera box score. Uh, yeah, nice show, guys. Very in depth on the phrasing. Gosh, yeah, I feel like we sti- we didn't even like explain it clearly. I feel like we need another crack at that. Like, I meant for it to be like super easy to understand what phrasing is to people, and then we had like messed up recordings and stuff like that. So we're gonna give it another shot, and we we oh. really just were here to like honor. Dimitri, so and and in an unusual way, you know, unusual way. A lot of people are gonna do their own thing and. And hey, maybe we could all learn something, not just about him, but about this art form that he clearly, clearly loved. We got good calls and bad calls. Gentlemen, who wants to go first? I'll, I'll go first. Go we're, we're off of Thanksgiving, which means that we are heading into Christmas and Advent gig season for all you musicians out there. So my good call is for you all to stay healthy, rest up, and let's make rent this month. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that if you are a... Um, you know, chamber opera company or a fringe opera company uh, that put on your calendar for next year that the first weekend after Thanksgiving is a good weekend to put on a show because there's nothing going on right now. Like this is like a little bit of the calm before the storm. Mm -hmm. And there's a young company in Chicago called New Moon Opera that's doing an Offenbach double bill. So because there's nothing else happening, I'm going to go see that this weekend. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. You can visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra.
On Facebook, just search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter, at Opera Box Score. And then you can also leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For co-host Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you work off your Thanksgiving dinners in the gym. Yeah, right. We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central when a very tan Tobias Wright returns to the show from Florida. No, really, this time I'm not lying tonight. I think he's just making out with his girlfriend. The Rosebud Show is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment. Hey, hey.